This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Let's bring in our guest, Dr. William Hazeltine, back with us. He has been a go-to voice for us many times throughout the pandemic. He's chairman and president of Access Health International, founded more than a dozen biotech companies, including Human Genome. Uh, His autobiography released last year, My Lifelong Fight Against Disease. Um, Dr. Hazeltine, uh, so good to have you back with us. Um, How are you? And how do you make sense of some of the recent round of headlines uh, that have to do with both COVID and the vaccine? Well, uh, I'm fine, thank goodness, and my family is fine, and uh, we're looking forward to a better year than uh, we've had. With respect to the headlines, they're very upsetting because we see an epidemic out of control in many countries. And when they try to control it, the moment they release it, the, the infection's popping back up. Unless you were able to control this infection early on, like China and a few other countries did, you're really in the soup for a long time. And thank goodness we have vaccines. Have you but gotten? On the other hand, yeah, have I gotten the vaccine? Not yeah. yet. No, I'm not, not eligible yet. But we, <laughs> we're all waiting for the vaccines, I can tell you. <laughs> Excuse me, that's the first story. The second story, of course, is virus variation. All of those who, who worked with HIV, this is like our old ghost coming back to haunt us. And uh, it's just a uh, very serious situation because the um, virus obviously is changing in response to immune pressure. Whether or not it's getting around the vaccines, I think it's only a matter of time. Hmm. It may already have done so. And the uh, optimism that people have that it's not gotten around the vaccines already is, I think, misplaced. Let me tell you the reason I think that. There was a patient in Great Britain who had a prolonged infection because the patient was immune suppressed. 23 samples of virus were taken during the patient's treatment. The treatment was convalescent sera. That's people who successfully fought off the virus. That patient got three successive rounds. And over time, because they were sampling frequently, you could see variations arise, and the virus became resistant to convalescent sera. Mm. If it becomes resistant to convalescent sera, that means it can get around our natural immunity. And if it can get around our natural immunity, it's very likely it can get around our uh, artificial immunity that we create with vaccines. Would, would, are you talking so that this would, this would be problem. the case with mRNA vaccines and, and other ways that vaccines have and are being developed? And just have about 45 seconds vaccine. and then we'll come back. Go ahead, please. Any vaccine. I'm talking about any vaccine. Hmm. Well, and... In just this last 40 seconds, the strains that the variants, are they usually stronger, tougher to deal with or not necessarily? Just quickly. Then the idea that they're weaker is wrong. They are not necessarily weaker. In some cases, they're more potent, i.e. more transmissible uh, and Mm -hmm. grow to higher titers, higher concentrations in people who are infected. So there's very worrying observations out there today. 
I have to say, uh, we went to break. Tim and I were talking uh, in the break, Dr. Hazeltine, and it felt pretty ominous uh, hearing what you had to say about variants and kind of where we go from here when it comes to COVID. So it made me feel like we never get out of it. Help me set the record straight. Is that fair or is it just a case that it's going to take longer? How do you see it? I see this as a constant battle against this virus, like we fight against the flu virus. I don't think it's going to paralyze our economies and keep us in the house as it does now. I think we'll have effective measures. We'll have much faster diagnostics to know who's infected. We'll have a whole series of drugs that we can take that can help us get over this and save us if we do get infected. And we'll have vaccines that we'll probably have to renew, whether it's every year, every two years, every three years, we're going to have to be renewing our vaccines to keep up with the virus changing. But we will get this under control in a way that lets our lives go on. But it won't be easy. We've got to be vigilant. We've got to replace complacency with vigilance. What is the best historical precedence for this? If, if we think about modern, uh, modern public health, when have we gotten through something like this? Well, we've gotten through it in the 1918 flu, the 1957-58 flu, and we've gotten through it for the HIV-AIDS pandemic. I think most people forget that that virus has killed upwards of 35 million people. Uh, in the world. And that is uh, much more than this has uh, killed. And yet we've got it under control. So modern science is capable of doing this. People have to cooperate, which they're not doing particularly well, especially over the last Christmas. But this, these are, this is infectious diseases we can control, but we cannot let down our vigilance. We can't assume that a vaccine is going to be the panacea. We've got to combine that with good public health measures and continued intensive research such as going on right now. Your autobiography, where you talk about, you know, your fight, your lifelong lifelong fight against disease, you've seen so much. Uh, we talk about polio, AIDS, COVID-19, you cover it all. How does COVID-19 even compare? How is it different? How has it kind of just changed your mind thinking about some of the healthcare kind of foes that are out there for us as we move forward? You know, I think what woke me up with the HIV is that this was a brand new virus that came out of almost nowhere. We just didn't see it coming. After that, we have seen, many of us have seen these viruses coming, and we've warned about it time and time again. There have been uh, all sorts of uh, war games planned. We knew what would happen. There's a movie called Contagion, which basically outlines exactly what's happening to us right now with COVID. Mm. The only difference is, uh, so it's basically, we know that these are coming. We know they're continually coming, and we just have to make sure that we have very good surveillance. We dropped the ball as a country very seriously, both with diagnostics, with uh, public health measures of control, and we're even dropping the ball right now with vaccine, not creating vaccines, but vaccine distribution. We've got to up our game all across the board to take account of what nature is, the reality of nature, not what we'd like nature to be. What's a realistic vision of life after this pandemic? You say the vaccine will not not be a panacea. Um, Are we going to be wearing masks in two years? I think it's a good idea to wear masks in winter, not necessarily in summer. You know, most of Asia wears masks all winter long. That's sensible because it's not just this virus. It's influenza viruses, it's cold viruses, it's all sorts of things. So I think we'll be wearing masks more than we will. I think we'll be paying a lot more attention to our vaccination schedules. We'll be paying a lot more attention to what the scientists are saying about what the threats are that are out there. And I hope that our public health uh, system 
adjust to realize that this is a national and international problem. We can't treat it on a state-by-state level. We've got to treat it on a national level. We have to have national policies which are uniform across the country because what happens in one state doesn't stay in that state. What happens in one country doesn't stay in that country. We've learned that. And if there's anything I hope comes out of this is a need for continued vigilance and continued improvement in our public health measures. And global cooperation, no doubt about it. Um, Dr. Hazeltine, nice to hear from you. I'm glad you, your family are well. Please stay safe. Uh, Dr. William Hazeltine, Chairman and President of Access Health International, his autobiography released uh, this year, My Lifelong Fight Against Disease from Polio and AIDS to COVID-19. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Needless to say, a lot going on uh, today. We know that. If you check the calendar, you'll be reminded too, Tim, that the clock is ticking on getting an 11th hour pardon from President Trump. TikTok. Yeah. Um, look, you're two weeks away from a new right. president. Like, get it done. Yeah. You, wanna, like, uh, <laughs> you want that pardon, you better get it. <laughs> so reporting for Bloomberg Business Week is Bloomberg News legal reporter David Yaffe Bellany. He is with us on the phone from Washington. Uh, David, hey, nice to have you here with Tim and myself. Time is kind of running out, but that doesn't mean uh, we might not see a few more presidential pardons. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's certainly the case. Um, right. The week, week before before Christmas, Trump issued 49 pardons and commutations to various people, including close associates of him, of his former operatives who've worked for him, his, his son-in-law's father, Charles Kushner, and it, he's widely expected to issue another round of those in the next couple of weeks before he leaves office. Uh, who would those pardons go to? Well, there's a whole array of sort of white-collar prisoners and kind of politically uh, connected prisoners all over the country who are kind of jockeying for his attention, trying to curry favor with the types of right-wing TV hosts and radio hosts who, who President Trump listens to. Um, there, are, there are lobbyists all over Washington who are making the case for, for particular prisoners. Um, I spoke to the family of a, of a, of a former New York businessman named Sh- um, Shalom Weiss, um, who uh, was, was sentenced to basically a life sentence in in prison for money laundering in the early 2000s and he's got a lobbyist working for him in washington his his nephew is uh, attempting to contact state legislators and getting them to put in a good word with the president sending tweets out to everybody he can think of so that's the type of full court press that you know all sorts of federal prisoners are are undertaking these days in the, in the waning days of the trump administration david i have to say what i love about this story or what i kind of scratch my head about is like wait, what is the process actually for for giving out pardons and to be fair um a lot of pardons were given out during the obama administration the george w bush i mean a little perspective in terms of what we're seeing it feels like a lot from trump but we've seen this before in other administrations correct Sure. In fact, if you look at the numbers, Trump has actually issued way fewer pardons and commutations than, than previous presidents. The difference is that the, the, the clemency grants that Trump is giving out are going to people who are politically connected or are able to get his attention through lobbying, rather than to people who applied to the Justice Department, had their petitions vetted by government lawyers, and sort of gone through that bureaucratic process, which is designed to basically... Um, you know, figure out who's sort of most most deserving of clemency, and no doubt there were there were major problems with that standard right. process. Well, that that's, Trump had kind of this is yeah. the other thing that I was scratching my head about. I thought there was a process, like you had to kind of check certain boxes before it could even be considered. But obviously, the president um, has gone around that. I mean, 
are there any kind of really rules and standards for this? Or is there a lot of, you know, is there criteria or is there a lot of wiggle room here? So the, the official the official process is you're a federal prisoner, you apply for clemency to the Justice Department, the Office of the Pardon Attorney evaluates your clemency petition, gets in touch with the judge who sentenced you, with the prosecutor who prosecuted you, and makes a determination, you know, should we recommend you for, for clemency. The, the Pardon Office will look at a lot of different criteria, including, you know, behavior, in, um, during the time that you've been in prison, um, you know, whether you've expressed remorse for the crimes that you committed, um, a whole wide set of criteria like that. Then the pardon office makes a recommendation to higher ups in the Justice Department who sort of vet the files and decide which ones they're going to send over to the White House for the, the, the president to make, it, make a decision on whether to, to, to grant clemency. That's the way that the process has traditionally worked. What, what Trump has done is basically cut the Justice Department out of the equation established a kind of a white and sort of informal White House panel that takes recommendations from anybody and everybody. You know, Kim Kardashian, of course, famously was able to successfully lobby the president to, to pardon somebody whose case she was interested in. Um, and so so really the lobbying is like focused directly at the White House now. And that kind of standard process at the Justice Department has been kind of cast aside. And, and to be clear, this is totally legal. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. The the president there are there are very few limits on the president's pardon power. It's not a it's not a requirement that he only pardon people who have been vetted by the Justice Department. It's just that's that's the norm of how it's worked for decades in Washington. And there are isolated examples of other presidents circumventing that that process. Um, but but Trump is really the first president in living memory who has kind of systematically undermined it. Um, and abandoned any sort of pretense of kind of fairness and uh, and sort of rigorous bureaucratic review. Okay, so what's the latest on pardons for family members, for himself, um, and yeah. for, for you know other people who are close to the president and the president's administration? Mm-hmm. Is that still possible? Um, it's certainly still possible. Um, he'll have the power to do it until his term ends on January 20th. Um, there's obviously been a lot of speculation about the prospect that he could issue preemptive pardons to his children, to Jared Kushner, which would basically say, you know, this this person is shielded from any future criminal charges at the federal level that might be brought against them. Um, there's a whole legal debate about whether it's actually constitutional for the president to pardon himself. Um, that question is sort of unsettled legally. The Supreme Court has never had the chance to weigh in on it. So it's something that Trump could do, and it's something that would only get overturned if, if federal prosecutors actually brought charges against him after he leaves office, which is unlikely. Um, so, you know, we're kind of in an uncertain phase now where it's not clear whether he's going to issue those pardons. There's certainly a chance that he might, and whether they'll hold up in court afterwards is, a, is sort of another question. Gosh, just another um, level chapter, you name I, it, when I, it comes I, to this. What? Well, I just wonder how this changes precedent for presidents moving forward, right? Well, like, yeah. Yeah. Will it, David? Well, I mean, that's a that's a that's a, a difficult question to answer. I mean, of course, the fear from people who really value the traditional norms of, of Washington and the traditional process for um, granting clemency to prisoners fear that, you know, this will give a license to future presidents to deviate from that, that right. process in all sorts of ways. But, you know, there's no guarantee of that. I mean, the expectation is that Joe Biden will revert to something similar to that kind of traditional process that I outlined earlier in which the Justice Department evaluates petitions and makes recommendations to the White House. Um, 
But, you know, I mean, that that process had its own flaws. And what this could also do is create an opportunity for Biden or for future presidents to sort of rejigger the process in in ways that don't kind of corrupt it with relentless lobbying, but make it move faster and allow more deserving people to receive clemency. Yeah, uh, I don't know. This is like one of those things. Yeah, yeah. Pull out a bottle of wine and have a great debate with your friends uh, over <laughs> presidential pardons. Because part of me is like, I just don't quite get it, why we need it. And then, you know, I've done some reading on the history of it. And it's, you know, initially for people, who, you know, guys who committed treason. Right. So that to me sounds egregious too. Do we pardon Not them? Not necessarily but- your son-in-law's dad <laughs> is what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, there's that too. Like... <laughs> It just feels like, do we need to have a presidential pardon? I'm not quite sure the right. use, you know, of it. I guess I understand it. Maybe I don't know, but um, like I said, good maybe a couple of bottles of wine, then you have a good debate. <laughs> uh, David, thank you so much, David Yaffe Bellany, legal reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone from Washington D.C. Do you think they make sense? I think it's antiquated. Yeah, I, I do too. I think I, I think our forefathers were like, listen, you know, at some point you folks have to like look at these rules and get rid of some of There's them. There's no check on it, and that's the thing. Yeah, right. it, it's very. It seems very like it's from a monarchy or something. Yeah, exactly. I agree with you. All right, I'm, I'm with you on that one. All right, we'll see if we get any kind of feedback on that. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. So it's already won for the record books, record turnout for a runoff, record amount of money raised for the congressional races. Of course, Tim, we're talking about the Georgia Senate runoff races happening as we speak. Today. Today. Like we finally got here, right? Finally. Finally. And we know so much uh, really hinges off of the outcome of these races. Yeah, look, it's uh, all about how much power President Biden and the Biden administration has. And it has implications for Americans when it comes to stimulus and the economic recovery uh, to the coronavirus pandemic. It'll stay with us for a long time. So let's get into it and find out what's going on. Our team covering it is Bloomberg government reporter Emily Wilkins on the ground in Atlanta, Georgia. Bloomberg News national political correspondent Gregory Cordy. He's on the phone in Washington, D.C. Emily, let's kick it off with you. What are you seeing? What's the turnout look like? What are you hearing uh, when it comes to maybe the early count versus the later count fill us in so we just left a polling place and i talked to one of the workers there and she said that the number of people that she's seen today for the runoff is about the same as what she saw in november for the general election as you mentioned we did see more than three million people go ahead and vote in early voting so we're not seeing giant lines today at this point in fact one of georgia's top election officials said that from his data the wait time for most polling places was under a single minute and so it, there seems to be uh, people moving through the system today doesn't seem to be too too many major delays that we've heard about at this point so far so good it sounds like um emily what about when it comes to results when do you think we'll start to see results so the polls close at 7 p.m. That's when votes are going to begin to be counted. As we see things come in, we're going to be doing in-person votes first. Those are expected to uh, slant in favor of the Republicans. So at the end of the night, it might look like the two Republicans, David Perdue and Kelly Leffler, are up a good bit on their Democratic opponents. But when the absentee ballots begin to get counted, we expect that margin to narrow pretty significantly. Although we're not going to, although we don't expect to call a winner tonight, we're hoping that we can call one within the next several days. We're not expecting to have to wait the uh, 10 days that we had to wait for Georgia to be called for the uh, November 3rd election. Gregory, I want to bring you in here and, and talk about implications of this, uh, not just for uh, for Americans, but but also for President Biden when he becomes president in just a couple of weeks. How important is this race in Georgia to the Biden administration? 
Yeah, this is a really extraordinary circumstance because, you know, we have runoff races, especially in the South. A lot of southern states do it uh, if neither candidate gets a majority in the general election. But never before in history have we had two Senate races from the same state, both up for grabs. And not only that, but, but these uh, races will decide control of the Senate. Now, the, the Democrats have a little bit more of an uphill climb here because they have to elect both Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff to get it to uh, essentially a 50-50 tie in the Senate. And then only then can uh, the vice president-elect, Kamala Harris, when she's sworn in, uh, cast the tie-breaking vote in favor of Democrats. And that will really uh, have a big impact on how Joe Biden approaches the first 100 days of his presidency. If he has the majority, he can afford to look for some of the bigger, broader, uh, bolder proposals that he outlined in the campaign, things like repealing the Trump tax cuts, uh, raising the minimum wage, a uh, something that resembles uh, but is not exactly the Green New Deal uh, in, as far as environmental legislation. If he doesn't have control of the Senate, then he's got to look to things like infrastructure, COVID relief, cybersecurity, maybe criminal justice. Uh, and so it'll be a much more moderate agenda because they'll have to look for Republican votes. It's also, Gregory, you know, might delay the process of things, including, you know, Biden's nominations for cabinet positions. I mean, it could just, you know, if it ultimately ends up with uh, the Republicans in control of the Senate, it just could slow this process down. Yeah, there's still a lot of really sore feelings, especially among Republicans, about how some of President Trump's nominees were treated. Uh, and a lot of his nominees, I, you know, I'm thinking of Education Secretary uh, Betsy DeVos. Uh, Mike Pence had to cast the tie-breaking vote to get her confirmed. And so if that trend continues and a lot of Joe Biden's nominees for cabinet posts are confirmed on party line votes, boy, it's going to be awfully close. And uh, even if they're not voted down, the majority leader has the power to kind of slow things down, to refer things to the committee, to, right. to not bring up uh, votes to the floor right away. And that could hamper a, a smooth transition to a Biden presence. Yeah, we weren't joking when we said all eyes are on Georgia. Emily, I mean, if you think about what happened in Georgia over just over the last couple of days, we've had the president down there. Uh, we've had the president-elect in Georgia rallying on behalf of Democrats. And then, of course, we had the infamous call between the president and the secretary of state and other Georgia official, elections officials that leaked to the Washington Post over the weekend, uh, putting pressure on uh, officials there to find the votes in the words of the president. How has that specter played over with voters in Georgia over the last couple of days? So as soon as that story got leaked, Democrats kind of jumped on it right away. Uh, Vice President-elect Harris was down at a rally in Savannah. Uh, she called it an abuse of power. John Ossoff said it was a direct attack on our democracy. So Democrats have come out really strong on this. And it remains to be seen exactly what impact it's going to have on Republicans. Certainly there are some Republicans, particularly in Washington, who we've seen, you know, criticize the phone call. But what strikes me is as I talk to Republican voters here in Georgia, most of them agree with the president in that they believe that the November 3rd election had a lot of fraud. They have a lot of concerns about it. And even though, granted, we, we have no convincing evidence that there was fraud in that November 3rd election, there's a lot of belief here that that's an issue. And so voters who hear the call, they might not sort of fully understand that Trump is trying to overturn a legitimate election. 
they might agree with the president. Hey, Emily, just quickly, 30 seconds here. So what's driving people most to the polls? Is it concerns about fraud and making sure that their vote is, uh, you know, represented in the count? Is it the economy? Is it the virus? What is it? Just very quickly. I can do this in five seconds. It's control of the Senate. Control of the Senate, control of Washington, Biden's Biden's agenda. That's that's the main thing here. You're my hero now. You did that so well. Emily Wilkins, thank you so much. Bloomberg government reporter on the ground in Atlanta. Love the story, too, by Bloomberg News national political correspondent Gregory Cordy uh, talking about, like, this is really significant. This will, as we said at the top of our broadcast, Tim, will determine the trajectory of so much for the Biden administration. Yeah, what was really surprising to learn from Gregory Cordy earlier when he would join us on Quick Take today was that uh, Biden will be the first president in years if they lose to actually um, not have a Congress that he controls. Which is significant. And catch Tim on Quick Take. You can find that on Roku and Apple TV and so much more. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about 11 minutes ago until we wrap up this trading day. Let's get to the drive to the close. David Dietz back with us, managing principal and senior portfolio strategist at PPAC Private Wealth Management. $8 billion in assets under management. David with us uh, on the phone from Summit, New Jersey. David, happy new year. Nice to have you here. Uh, I'm back with us. Uh, How are you? There's a lot going on. Doing well. Um, you know, it was a volatile day yesterday, but we're back on track today. So we are constructively optimistic going forward. Thank so, you. So which day is right, yesterday or today, ultimately? Uh, you know, I, I think there's the two key fundamentals that are still in play. First of all is the vaccine. We had the problems last year because of the worst pandemic since 2018. And since then, of course, we've gotten two uh, vaccines that have been approved, 95% efficacy. Um, A third is over in the continent, AstraZeneca. That will come here eventually. We expect to see further. So ultimately, I think we're still going to have a tremendous tailwind from the get-out-of-home trade as people re-engage with the economy as slowly these vaccines are jabbed into arms and people get back to normal. That's theme one. Theme two is unbelievable support from policymakers. It starts right with the Federal Reserve, which have pinned rates down to zero, and there's no sign that that's going to change anytime soon. So we're back in a situation where if you want to at least equal the rate of inflation, you've got to do something more creative than being in a bank account. And so there's this continuing surge into stocks. I think slowly is the key word that you use when it comes to the vaccine rollout here. Um, What is the market expecting when it comes to how quickly these shots can get in arms? Because at the way it's going right now, this is going to take a long time and it is not encouraging. Well, Tim, you make a great point. Quite frankly, I'm worried most about mutations. And Mm. what scared me more was what we heard down in South Africa, where they apparently have some sort of variation that may require re-engineering of some of the vaccines. In terms of the rollout, I I think it's just going to take a little while to get it right. I mean, right now we're being very cautious to make sure the neediest among us get it first. But at a certain point, I think it will be a free-for-all as supply lines ramp up and we can't have... 
um, for example, the Pfizer uh, thawing compound be wasted because uh, people who really should be taking it for whatever reason can't get it or don't want to take it. So I think that will ramp up. Um, It's just a question of time. All right. So question of time, um, and we can never really market time well, although I do feel like there might be some indications uh, throughout the year to give you an idea of, you know, whether or not we'll see market sell off or market rally. So having said that, David, how do you position yourself? Where are you finding opportunities specifically right now? Absolutely. So really, Carol, it's still a tale of two markets. On the one hand, you've got the overall S&P 500 trading at some of the priciest levels ever, close to 23 times next year's earnings. And that assumes we get a 20% pickup um, in earnings from this year, from 2020 to 2021. Having said that, 40% of all the components of the S&P 500 company lost money last year, which means we are rolling up our sleeves in looking, we're staying diversified, of course, but we're looking through those 200 to see which are well positioned in terms of franchises, in terms of business model, and will benefit from the reopening of this economy and continued low interest rates. That's what we're working on. And I think a key... um, visual for people is to is to consider the Russell 1000 growth, which was up close to 38% last year versus the Russell 1000 value, which is just above the flat line. That's a huge disparity. I think it closes in favor of value over the next 12 to 18 months. Uh, I want to talk Bitcoin here because this was the story when I woke up yesterday morning, mm-hmm. and it seems to be sort of ignored today. Um, that 17% decline that we saw yesterday was the biggest decline that we've seen since March still. Uh, Bitcoin recovering most of it, almost back at record that we saw over the weekend. Um, How do you position Bitcoin in your investment portfolios, in your clients' portfolios, in your strategy? To be perfectly honest with you, we don't. And, and, And I'll tell you why. First of all, I don't know how to value that. Um, you know, there is no cash flow. You can't uh, net present value a stream of cash flows. So, uh, you know, is it, is it worth 100000 Is it worth 10000 I can't tell you. Second, of course, we do like to find things that have some sort of dividend or interest component. Historically, over the last 100 years, half your return in the market has come from dividends. Of course, Bitcoin pays none of that. Third, of course, is legality. I mean, there's a lot of things people want which are held back. If anyone thinks that the government can't stop what is a great product, look at what happened, for example, to Ant Financial in China. Mm. China decided, no, Jack Ma, you can't take that company public, and and it disappeared. Look at things like cannabis here. It's been held back because of government regulation. Ultimately, governments, I don't think, can have currencies that can't be controlled by them, that can't be stimulated by them. And of course... But that is if it's a currency, right? We still don't know, you know, our in house analyst looks at it as kind of a, a collectible of some sorts, you know, and there's supply demand restraints that provide support from the price. I mean, you know, it's not your typical investment, but having said that, there are things like junk bonds and <laughs> that high yield that used to be considered exotic and now they're mainstream. So it makes me a little wary that who knows what, what, what the future might be for Bitcoin. Well, absolutely. Who does know? It's all a probability game. But of course, it will not necessarily be Bitcoin. There's a series of other cryptocurrencies. And what I thought was very interesting is yesterday, one of the federal regulators gave permission to banks to do business using cryptocurrencies uh, with respect to stable coins. And so I said, what is stable coins exactly? Well, stable coins mean 
cryptocurrencies which are tied to something like dollars, euros, or gold. Mm. So I definitely think that there is a great future for electronic trading of money movement or value movement. I just don't know where there's going to be Bitcoin. And given the popularity of it, that <laughs> in my 30 years of doing that, that is a yellow flag, mm. if not a red flag right there with the way it's moving around. All I'm going to say, David, is we're living in strange times. There's a lot of disruption <laughs> going on. Um, we shall see. David Dietz, thank you so much. Managing Principal, Senior Portfolio Strategist over at PPAC Private Wealth Management, $8 billion, uh, in assets under management. Uh, joining us on the phone from Summit, New Jersey. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.